So last week we finished Isaiah 49, and it's important to get some context because the prophet will talk about you, and the question becomes, who is you? Who is he speaking to? And as I looked back, the place where I think you was established is back in 49.6. So I'm going to read Isaiah 49.6. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the people who are being brought back are the tribes of Jacob, the preserved of Israel which I am assuming is all of the nation Israel, both Judah and Ephraim. We then have, down to verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. So, those are the two antecedents of the pronoun you that we're going to run into. One, Zion, I am inferring we're talking about the land. And of course, you all have been in Torah for long enough to know that at Jubilee, the land gets its people back. It is not the case that the people get their land back. In other words, when God put his people in the land, and his people then got scattered and exiled. In the Jubilee, the land, if you will, is missing the people that are supposed to be on it. So it's the land that feels the lack of people. Certainly people feel the lack of land, but the way to look at it is the land is missing its people. So for Zion to say, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me, that is the land, if you will, saying, I have been forgotten by God because my people are not on me like they're supposed to be. So the people that are coming back are the entire nation, both Judah and Ephraim, or Judah and Israel, and the land is missing its people. So as we go down and start reading 50, there are going to be some promises made to you. And so what I'm trying to do is establish the antecedent of that pronoun before we start. So it's the Messiah that's going to bring him back, but who's he going to bring? And he is going to bring the sons of Jacob and Israel, so that is the entire nation. And as we talked about, when we talked about the greater exodus last time, the number of people who are going to be coming back is going to be so large that current Israel or biblical Israel, either one, is going to be too small for them. And so now as we come into chapter 50 of Isaiah, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So you have a chiasm there. And you all, of course, understand biblical Hebrew divorce law. 
the way it works in Hebrew is the husband is the one that initiates the marriage and the husband must be the one to dissolve it. So what happens is if the husband sends the wife away or gives her a certificate of divorce, she leaves. Contrary to modern American practices where he leaves. So what's happened here is Israel has been sent into exile. And again, I will remind you, Isaiah is writing well over a century before Judah goes into exile. So this is yet future. So what's happening when Israel and Judah, north and south kingdoms, when they go into exile or sent into exile, it is as if God has given them a certificate of divorce and put them away. So the language here is, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So the idea of being sent away, or being sent out of the land, or being sent out of the house, is marriage speak, if you will. God regards idol worship on the part of Israel as adultery. She is his bride, and for her then to give worship and affection to another god, from God's perspective, is adultery. So when Israel and Judah get sent into exile, what they are being sent out for is adultery. And the exile, if you will, is a get or a divorce. In Mosaic law, if a man divorces his wife and, and, and she marries another, then he cannot take her back. The key part in there is if she marries another. Now, what I am going to suggest is said in several places to include Deuteronomy, where he says, if you guys are unfaithful to me, I'm going to send you into exile, and you're going to worship idols made of wood and stone. Right? You could argue, and I might argue, and I would certainly entertain the argument as being not without validity, that worshiping idols made of wood and stone in exile would constitute a divorced wife having remarried. So, Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. So, Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So one of the things you might argue, as I say, I would certainly entertain it as being not unreasonable at all, is when Israel and Judah get sent into exile for worshiping pagan gods, and if, as in Deuteronomy, they go into exile and worship gods of wood and stone, one might argue that the divorced wife has remarried. So, the Torah says that if you put a wife away 
and she marries someone else, then she can no longer be married to her first husband. That's also very clear. So, how does God handle that situation? So, two things happen. Thing one is Paul says that if a woman's husband dies, she is no longer bound to him, and she may marry another. And if you are firmly Trinitarian, as I am, what you have, if you will, is the death of God with quotes around it. It's the Son of God. And so who is the bride of, I will suggest that it is, the previously put away or divorced Israel, who is now free to marry the risen Messiah who died? What I'm saying is, the death of the Messiah has a whole bunch of stuff wrapped up into it. It has the death of an innocent covenant victim. You have resurrection from the dead, which is the acceptance of the sacrifice for sin. You have the fact that sin has no claim upon him. And you have when a husband dies, his wife is then free to remarry. So all the way down to verse 2. Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. I'm not sure what we're talking about there not being a man. And this is a guess. Where is your new husband? That could be what is being said. I am just guessing there. I don't know. And certainly not pushing it very hard. So why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? I don't know why that sentence is in there. The only guess that I have is it may be referring to the fact that she's come out of idol worship. Because remember it says in Deuteronomy, when you get sent into a foreign land and you worship idols of wood and stone, at some point you're going to get tired of that and you're going to realize that they cannot deliver and they are not satisfactory. And at that point you are going to turn to me and cry out. So one of the things I think that could be is when the Messiah comes to redeem Israel, the, quote, man of the house is gone. They have quit worshiping idols. That's a guess. And I'm not pushing it. I'm just suggesting that might be what it means. And then, of course, the fact that he is able to redeem, which is what the rest of the paragraph says. All the way down to verse 4 now. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That's messianic with capital letters all over it. That's talking about the obedience of the Messiah and obedient even unto humiliation and death. 
pulling out the beard, striking the back, spitting in the face. Those were all things that happened prior to the crucifixion. And the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Well, that's what he did during the time of his ministry. He had a tongue that was taught, if you will, and words to sustain him who was weary. So this, to me, screams of Yeshua's ministry. I I don't have any doubt about any of that. I don't know how the rabbis look at it. I, I just don't know. But to me, it's talking about the Messiah. Verse 7, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And the idea of him being humiliated and disgraced by men and exalted by God is Christian theology 101. Very straightforward there. I don't have anything special to say about that. It's obviously talking about the Messiah, Yeshua. So verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire, by the torches you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Now notice, it starts off, those who are in darkness have seen a great light kind of feel. So the initial feel of it is people walking around in darkness and a great light has dawned upon them. That's not what's going on here. The light here is human-created light, not God-created light. So what it's talking about in Christian sense is works salvation. You are making your own light instead of depending upon the light that God shines upon you. And the reason you can tell that is at the end of verse 11, walk by the light of your fire by the torches you have kindled, This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. In other words, the light that you have created, forsaking the light that I have given you, that light will cause you to be in torment as opposed to my light, which will cause you to be at peace. So we're all the way to chapter 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. So now we have shifted before we have those who are trying to walk by human manufactured light and we've now shifted and we're talking about those who are pursuing righteousness and those who are seeking the Lord. So we have a shift, if you will. So listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. So what this is saying is those who pursue righteousness, and I'm assuming we're still talking about those who are in exile. 
those who have decided that they're tired of idols. And what he's saying is, look to the rock from which you were hewn. What I am suggesting he's saying is, go back to the Torah. Go back to your origins. It's sort of like the tag that we have on our Restoration Messianic Fellowship literature. You know, stand at the crossroads and look, and look to the ancient ways, and walk in them where you'll find rest for your souls. So the idea here, I believe, is you guys who are in exile and would look to me, look to your origins. Look to Abraham, look to Sarah, look to the patriarchs, look to Moses, look to the Torah. The idea there is in order to come to me presently, you have to go back to when we were espoused. And that's what you find in the Torah. And notice now, the Lord comforts Zion. Remember, I started off this by trying to figure out who the antecedent of the pronoun was. And it's either the entire nation, sons of Jacob and Israel, which is the entire nation, or it is Zion, which is the land. And so here, what he's saying is the Lord will comfort Zion. And what he's talking about there, I am convinced, is the land without her people is barren and desolate. We see that today because you can tell where the Arab areas are and where the Jewish areas are. They both get the same rain, and it's a small country. So the idea is Zion, he comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the Garden of God. So when the land regains its people, the land will once again blossom which it does. As I say, since the Jews have gone back in 1948, the land that they are on has blossomed. People going back to the land is a God thing, but the land, when the people don't walk in God's ways, will spit them out. So it's very much an active participant. And in the Torah, when Moses and God want to have witnesses to a covenant, they call heaven and earth as witnesses. Again, you've all heard this riff, but I was talking at breakfast about it this morning, so it's on my mind. God is masculine, the earth is feminine. So God initiates, provides seed, provides information. The earth takes that seed or information and brings forth fruit. So the function of the earth is feminine to God's masculine. So the idea here of God putting the people back and the land responding by blossoming is entirely biblical. So, picking it up at three again. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. And I'm saying that joy, gladness, thanksgiving and the voice of song is the function of people. So when the people are restored, the land blossoms and the people respond with joy, gladness, thanksgiving, and so on. Verse 4. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, for my arm they wait. So I am again saying this is messianic. You can see God saying that the land is longing for his people to come back. Paul says the same thing. 
the whole creation groans, waiting for the redemption. So the idea of the earth being an active participant is, again, all over Scripture. Verse 6, Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. This is obviously Revelation speak. We haven't done Revelation in a few years. But one of the things, for those of you who have been through Revelation, will remember is there is a phrase in Revelation, those who dwell on the earth or the earth dwellers. And the earth dwellers are identified in contradistinction to the people of God. The earth dwellers are the ones who sit in the darkness and gnaw on their tongues in pain and curse the Lord. The earth dwellers are the ones who don't look at what's going on and turn to God. They stay in rebellion. So what Isaiah is talking about here, when he says in verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens, look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. These are the earth dwellers that we're talking about in Revelation. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed, which is to say, I am going to take care of my own. Verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. And you've all been here long enough that you recognize that in Deuteronomy there are two different circumcisions of the heart. Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 36 are the two circumcisions of the heart. The first one is done by you. In other words, study the word, follow it as best you can. The better you do that, the longer you'll stay in the land. And then 36 is after the return, God will do the circumcision for you. Verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O armor of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces that pierced the dragon? Rahab is not the Rahab of Jericho. This is a different Rahab. But you can look it up in Isaiah 30, verse 7. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab, who sits still. So God calls Egypt Rahab, who sits still. And of course, the dragon, God refers to Pharaoh as Leviathan, the dragon that lives. Verse 10, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Just as Rahab and the dragon refer back to Egypt, this also refers to the crossing of the sea. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And I'm asserting that that's greater Exodus stuff. Verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you to be afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually 
all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. Where is the wrath of the oppressor? So one of the things that it says in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy is when Israel is out of sorts with God, they will in fact flee from before their enemies. They will be in terror all the time. And when they go into exile, they will be in terror. So what he's saying here is God is the one who comforts you. Do not be afraid of them, because remember, who are we talking to in this passage? Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. So he is talking to the righteous, those who know the law, in exile. And what he's saying is, you need not be afraid as you were in exile before you turned back to me. Verse 14, he who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, nor shall his bread be lacking. In other words, he will not be slain by the conqueror, nor will he starve to death. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Notice we changed pronouns here. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. As I say, the pronouns in this stuff get squoggly. 16. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. We're talking to those who are in exile, who are pursuing righteousness and who are learning the law. 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, there is none to guide her. Among all the sons she has borne, there is none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons she has brought up, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. And what we're talking about here is future exile. Future exile from Isaiah's perspective. And the idea here is the young men are the warriors. They should be the one who are standing up and defending the city. Yet they have fainted. In other words, their courage has failed. They have fainted and they lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. In other words, they're helpless. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So the idea is when God finally decides you're going into exile, the strength of your young men, which you should be able to depend upon for protection, is going to fail. They all turn into soy boys. 21. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says Adonai, Jehovah, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over, and you have made your back like the ground, like the streets of them to pass over. Okay, a couple things going on there. One, the reason that they went into exile, and then once they are in exile, once they turn to the Lord and search his word and pursue righteousness, 
then this cup that God gave to Jerusalem to drink, the cup of his wrath, will pass from them. And we see lots and lots of places that God will deal with the empires that he uses to chasten Israel. And the reason that he deals with those empires harshly is because of what I would describe as unnecessary roughness. God sent them to expel his people from their land, but they were far harsher than was necessary to do what needed to be done. Kay and I were watching a lecture series on the Second World War. Victor Davis Hanson, Hillsdale College. Excellent series, by the way. And he was talking about the German army in World War II. And the German army, against all of its opponents, killed something on the order of 1.3 of the enemy to every one they lost. So the German army was 30% more deadly than any of the armies they faced. And when you're talking about the Soviet army, it was even worse. And one of the things that Hansen said is part of the reason why the Germans got bogged down in Russia is because they killed far more people than was necessary to obtain their military objectives. You know, we're having a war. We've got to kill somebody, right? And what the Germans did was they killed far more people than was necessary to meet their military objectives. And what that did is it turned the people of Russia who were anti-communist and hated Stalin almost as much as they hated the Nazis, when it became very clear that the Nazis were not there to save them from Stalin, the people rallied to Stalin, whereas if the Germans had been less bloodthirsty, it's very likely that many of the Russian peasants would have come to them. So when God is dealing with the people the empires who have been his instrument in chastening Israel and Judah, what he is grumpy about is not that they took out Israel and Judah. He's the one that had them do it. What he's grumpy about is the fact that they were far more harsh than was strictly necessary to do what God would have had them do. And I'm down in 23. And I will put into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. One of the things that was common in warfare at that time is when you conquered an army, what you would do is you would have them lie down on the ground and you would have your troops put their foot on the neck of the conquered army, which is by way of saying, we win and we're humiliating you and we want to make sure that you understand who just won. So this bow down, if you will, that we may pass over is talking about that kind of a thing. Et ta